So let's pick up the theme of that video and uh, take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 6. I want to pick up the theme of that and let's kind of start with considering this question, particularly questions tied to standards and uh, standard units of measurement kind of parts of living. Now, we don't always think about that. They're very much part of everyday life, but uh, as we think about it together, let me give you a point of reference. I first I think maybe the first time that I really recognized that uh, there were standards and measurement kind of issues in life occurred when I was uh, probably late junior high to early high school uh, age, and uh, I, I really hate to date myself up here, but uh, some of you will not understand this, but some of you will. Uh, before cell phones and bag phones even, uh, there was this thing called the CB radio. And some of you will remember that when CB radio stuff was the craze, uh, it was nothing to see cars driving down a road with, looked like porcupines with antennas sticking all over the place and everybody had handles and all that. And my dad got full blown into the CB craze. And in the process of that, we decided to go on a family vacation one time. We lived in West Texas in Odessa, or as my nephew calls it, Slow Detha, um, and we were going to go to a pretty place for vacation, which in that case meant we were going to go to the mountains of uh, south part of New Mexico. And it was about a five-hour drive. And I, I didn't know at the time what possessed my parents to do this, but they decided that the thing to do would be for my brother and I to go in my brother's car and mom and dad would travel in their car. I didn't understand at the time. My brother and I were into some pretty bad stuff in those days. Uh, which was from a parenting decision that was really not smart to put us in a car by ourselves for five hours. Um, but when I became a parent, I fully understood that decision. <laughs> no, y'all go in your car and we'll go in ours. And uh, it was better that way. But uh, along the way, and this was back in the day when most of the highways around had mile markers on them. And in case you don't know what that is, um, it was just a a pole stuck in the ground with a number on it, and it marked the number of miles on that particular highway. And um, So somehow in this trip, we got separated. And my brother and I were a long ways, we thought, behind my parents, and we didn't know exactly where they were. And apparently that started working on my dad. So he got on the CB radio, and he called my brother up, and uh, they got to talking about it, and my dad asked my brother, where are you? Now, I need to interrupt the story here to tell you something about my brother, okay? My brother was a knuckle-dragger, muscle-head football player. You know what I mean, knuckle-dragger? Just kind of, you know, walks into a room. <laughs> That's my brother. Um, and um, he could get away with that at school because he was tougher than nearly everybody else. But my dad never cut him any slack with that kind of stuff. And so in the... Um, the decision-making process about where we were, my dad got on and said, where are you? To which my brother said, well, right, we're right here. <laughs> Where's that? And I could, I could tell in my dad's voice that the tension was rising a bit. And uh, the response was, well, I don't know. And he made some comment about just passing a windmill or something like that. Uh, and my dad said, Harv. Now, my brother's name is Harvey. We call him Harv for short. And he said, Harv, 
what mile marker are you at? And so we waited till one passed, and my brother told him it's number such and such. To which my dad replied, well, we just passed number such and such, so we're probably like two miles apart, okay, more or less. Now, in the process of that, some other people, that's the beauty of Citizen Band Radio, other people could hear your conversations. Some other people started weighing in on what was going on there, and finally it moved my dad to ask this question. Harv, how far apart are those mile markers? Now, my brother's two years older than I am, okay? But the muscle dragger, muscle, excuse me, knuckle dragger, muscle head football player brother of mine didn't get the question. How far apart are those mile markers? And I watched him as he kind of went, um, a mile? His voice went up. That means it's a question. It means I'm not really sure about this, but a mile? Now, I want to just leave that story there, okay? And if you're not sure, those mile markers are exactly a mile apart, all right? But that's a standard of measurement, all right? And it was really the first time in my life that that whole concept kind of weighed in on me. Now, since then, I've been aware that standards and measurements of those standards in our lives are really pronounced. They're all over the place, and we find them in lots of different ways. Here's another one for you, for those of you who are still uh, in school, especially at the point of school where you have to learn spelling. My dad, again, I'll go to him for an example here, um, a brilliant man, and uh, many, you know, many of the things that he did and taught, uh, even these days, I'm just beginning to understand some of the wisdom behind him. Uh, but he didn't always spell very well. And he got into a situation in a public setting where he spelled something out and spelled it incorrectly. And it hit him enough when people kind of looked at him. You know the look that says... You know, should we correct him or not? But we know that he's wrong. And he picked up on that. And so he said this, a true genius can spell any word three different ways. Okay, now let me, if you happen to be in school and you have a spelling test coming up, there's a problem with that statement that he just made, all right? You might be able to spell it three different ways, but there's only one correct way to spell it. And if you try to spell it a different way and argue your case, you're going to make a bad grade, right? So the standard of life, you know, those are kind of easy, generic kind of examples. Let me pull it around and put, put it on a different front for you. You know that our church is currently looking for two different staff members, a children's minister and a youth minister. And in a recent meeting with one of those two search committees, uh, I brought the issue. I think I'm the one that brought it up. It doesn't really matter who brought it up, but the, the point of it is very valid. And that is that when it comes to ministers, churches tend to hold their ministers to a higher level of accountability, a higher standard, right? Is that true? Well, let me try one out on you, okay? If you'll look around here, you will find that my wife is nowhere to be found in, on campus today, okay? I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. 
But if I were to tell you, no, I would never tell you this. So if you were to find out that Teresa's not here today because I beat her up last night, would that be acceptable for you to look at me as one who beats his wife? Okay, if you said yes, you're wrong, okay? (laughs) It's not acceptable. The standard doesn't allow for a pastor to beat up his wife, period, ever. But let's challenge the thinking. If a ministerial search committee says we hold the pastor or our pastors to a higher standard and that becomes the one we use as an example, does that say it's not okay for me to beat my wife but it's okay for you to beat yours? Again, the only correct answer is no, never. It's never okay for you to beat your wife or wives to beat your husbands. So I want, I want you to, to get a feel for the struggle, the tension that we feel now on this idea that staff is held to a higher standard than what the rest of the church is. Now, I believe that it's a true statement. Okay? For, once, for uh, one instance of that, an example of why it's a true statement came from one of our committee members because I posed that question to them. What then is the standard that's different? And one of our committees said, well... We would expect this person, if they're going to be a specialist, let's say it's in the youth committee or the youth area, we expect them to be professionally at a higher level than what just the regular youth workers would be because that's what they do as a profession. So we expect them to have a higher level of professionalism and maybe even specified training in that particular area. So the standard can be higher, but if it's a standard of saying, you know, we want a pastor or a youth pastor or a children's minister who's not going to steal money from the church, you don't get off by saying, but it's okay for me to steal. Right? You with me? Okay. So think about how many pens you've taken from work, home. No, I don't want to go there. All right. So the standard thing. Now, those are really kind of easy ones that I just talked about. They don't really get right down. You know, mile markers, who cares? Spelling, I mean, you need to care, uh, especially if you write for a living or write as part of what you do. You need to care about that kind of stuff. Uh, and we certainly need to care about the right standard when it comes to the ministers that we're going to select here. But uh, most of us can go through our lives and those things are not make or break kind of things. So let me give you a tougher one. What is an acceptable standard as it relates to the Christian life? In other words, as you live out your Christian life on a day-to-day basis, what is the acceptable standard for you? When do you get it right? Is it possible in our churches at large that we have accepted standards of living our Christian life that are less than what Christ intended? Is it possible that we have standards that we have adopted as it relates to our Christian life that is far and away beyond what Jesus expected? That's an operative question. That's one that needs to get right down into how we live our lives every day. 
So let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture and let's see what we find here. Now, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I told you Teresa's not here. Uh, the reason she's not here is uh, I, I took her to Houston Friday evening. She had to work all day, and I picked her up at the office in, uh, in Beaumont, and we drove to Houston to the airport, Intercontinental. Uh, nobody told me, y'all did not tell me not to go through Liberty and Tascosita and all that stuff during rush hour. Somebody should have told me that. Okay? It, that was 4 million cars to the square mile through there. It was terrible. But the value of that is it gave Teresa and I a chance to talk because I was taking her to put her on an airplane because she was on her way to Odessa uh, because her mother is in grave health. And uh, Teresa needed to get out there and see her because we're 12 hours away. We don't know, you know, if this is the last time she's going to get to spend time with her mom and see her alive or not. We just don't know. But her health is rapidly deteriorating and Teresa needed to get out there. And so we went over there and uh, it, it gave us a chance to talk about a number of things and it also gave me a chance to think about this question of the standards regarding Christian, how we measure and what the standard is regarding our Christian living. And here's what I came to. I almost hate to tell you this because it, it is a little bit uh, embarrassing. But I think that it's common enough that I don't mind pulling the covers back on me a little bit and maybe you can find yourself in here too. One of the realities, I think, on this question regarding the measure of the standard of Christian living is that we usually approach or often approach that as if it's the situation kind of defines that for us. I'll say it this way. Do you find yourself having to watch what you say when you're around a bunch of church people? Maybe not what you say, but what you do. For instance, I grew up in West Texas out in the oil fields, a roughneck area of West Texas, and it was nothing for you to be driving along, and if you happened to do something that made the guy next to you in the car next to you or the truck next to you upset, he would salute you. <laughs> that communicate? All right. So if you find yourself driving down the highways here and some knucklehead cuts you off or something and you go to salute him and you realize it's the pastor. <laughs> then you fall into the category that I'm talking about here, okay? Teresa ran into this in a previous job. She started a new job a couple of weeks ago, but when she was working out at the federal prison, uh, she did not go into that and tell people that she was a pastor's wife. Uh, but as they began to find out that she was a pastor's wife, she said it was amazing how their behavior around her changed. People walking by and they're using language that might be appropriate in a prison and they would walk past her office, see her sitting there. She said, oh, Miss Rowe, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. <laughs> you just didn't know the preacher's wife was going to be sitting there listening to you, okay? So it's kind of one of those things that, it's situational sometimes. We, our behavior sometimes matters as it relates to the group that we're around. If you're in a church group, some things that you think you know you shouldn't say. But if you get around some of your friends at work, maybe it's a little more appropriate to say those things. You with me? Hello? Hello? Okay. Now, 
let's take that and ask ourselves the question. Is that an effective and an appropriate way for us to look at the standards of the Christian life? Does it really matter if we are one way with church people and another way with other people? Let me, let me just take this idea of the situation mattering even further. Most of us, I'm going to say all of us, have areas of the way we think that we know we would never speak out loud around other people. That's just kind of how we are. And so in that context, in that situation, we just don't say it because we know it doesn't honor God the way we think about some things or some people. So what that does is that puts this whole question of the standard of Christian living on a sliding scale. So the question is, is that acceptable for us? Fortunately, we find a verse of Scripture now that is tucked away uh, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 6. It's kind of one of those things that I think is uh, it's intriguing to me, this little verse that we're going to look at today. It's extremely challenging to me, and I really think that I've never heard a sermon on this verse, which means it's kind of one of those things that we like to just kind of push off to the side. So let's look at it. It's Luke chapter 6, and especially we're going to be in verse 40. Now, we're actually going to be all over the place in chapter 6 here in just a few moments, but let's start off with this verse. And remember, the question is, what is an acceptable standard regarding the living out of the Christian life? To what should we shoot? Should we, well, so that's the question. Here's verse 40. A disciple, this is Jesus talking, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Here's the principle that I draw from that. You and I are supposed to look like Jesus. Now, God, in his infinite wisdom, saw to it that we did not have any drawings or any kind of way, representation of what Jesus looked like in the flesh. Okay? We just know he was a man, okay? a Jew, so he probably wasn't Caucasian looking like you and I are. But we don't know that. We don't have pictures. So these pictures that you find all over the place of this little effeminate-looking dude with the long hair and the beard, um, maybe, but probably not, is what he looked like. Rugged, I'm sure. But whatever the case, we don't have that. What we do have is what Scripture shows us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, as they lay out for us the life of Jesus, and we find his character, and we find the traits that were um, appealing to people. We find the things about him that helped us to see that he was different. He was, in fact, God in the flesh, and that made him much different than the way everybody else was and certainly different than the way um, the standard of living for Jewish religion was. And what this verse says to us is a student is not above his teacher, but when the training is finished, the student will look like his teacher. So let me just ask you, do you look like him? If that's the standard, and I believe it is, matter of fact, there's other places in scripture that will support that. If that's the standard that we look like him, 
in the way we live our lives, simple question is, do you look like him? Maybe a different way to ask that is, who do you look like? The reality is, sociologists will tell us, that in life we tend to surround ourselves with people and we begin to take uh, traits from them and we mimic them. And so in the little circle that you run in, if there's a certain word or phrase or idiom, that kind of stuff that you use, you'll start using it because those people that you care about use it. Okay? In family groups, we have physical traits that we pass on generation to generation. I was talking to some friends yesterday uh, and, uh, you know, I couldn't do a thing with my hair this morning. Um, and I have a son who has the exact same problem. And I have a nephew who has the exact same problem. But I have another son who's, and by the way, I have two uncles who were totally bald by the time they got out of college. I have a, another son who's got a head of hair like Teresa's daddy had uh, and like my dad has that you know, he'll never be bald. He would love to be bald. Because he's got to deal with that mop on his head every day. I don't have to do that. I just comb it with a wash rag and I'm gone. <laughs> Family traits. Okay? We begin to pick up stuff from those people who are around us. And that fits in the way we do church also. We see something we like, we pull it in. You've got a favorite preacher, you start listening to this. One of the reasons I don't listen to preachers on the radio is because, first of all, I can't stand most of them. And secondly, the ones that I really like, uh, they don't need me to be like them. I just need to be me. So who are you like? And the standard for us in our Christian living, according to what Jesus says, again, I'll read verse 40 for you. It says, this is a terrible page turn for me here. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Let's make sure we get the picture here the way Luke lays it out for us. Jesus has just finished calling his 12 disciples. Actually, there are a bunch of disciples. And as we saw last week in the message, Jesus pulls aside, prays all night. He chooses 12. He calls them apostles. They're from his group of disciples, but they're his 12. And they're the ones that he has said, now I want you guys to come with me because you're going to be my followers, but you're also going to be the ones that I send out. As we said last week, the entire salvation enterprise of God from the Garden of Eden until the cross is going to land in the lap of these 12 guys. So Jesus has chosen them. And immediately after that then, Luke pulls out excuse me, Jesus pulls these 12 out and then they go down and there's a crowd waiting for them. Look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 6. Right after Jesus picks those 12, it says this, and he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, a huge geographic area. People are coming and waiting for Jesus. Verse 18, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them. And so here's the deal. Jesus now has chosen these 12 and now he begins the process of training them. He is very deliberate, very intentional in taking his disciples 
and teaching them. Verse 40, as we get further into this, is going to remind us that the end of the teaching process is that they're going to be just like him. Now that stretches us because somehow we've settled into a much easier standard of what the Christian life is about. I preach if you'd have known me back then, I'm a lot better now. Yeah, but you're still a jerk. No, not you. I'm, you know, I'm not talking about you. I, I'm talking about, you know what I mean by that? Well, I, I'm saved to the glory of God. I'm going to heaven when I die. But you're sending us through a whole different realm down here while you're still alive, dude. But we settle for stuff that may be less than the standard of what God intends. So Jesus chooses his 12, and now he pulls them down, and he the first lesson from those verses we just read, the first lesson is Jesus as he invests himself into those people. We'll come back to those verses in just a minute, but he's modeling for them what compassionate service looks like. Verses 20 through 49, now Jesus picks up not just he models for them, but now he begins to intentionally instruct them. And I'm not going to take the time to read all of that. You can go back through it. It's called by scholars the Sermon on the Plain. Now, one of the reasons they call it that is because, first of all, it's a sermon that Jesus is preaching there. But secondly, it has some overlap with what we know as the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, I have already preached through that. One of the first things, one of the first series that I did when I got here was to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I did, you may remember, probably not, but the reason I did that is because Jesus gives us in one sermon the uh, essential elements, the essence of what it means to be his follower. And so we work all the way through the Sermon on the Mount and we find Jesus and this is what it looks like. This is what I'm talking about. And then he modeled it in his life. And so when our teaching is done, then we should have those characteristics. So it shouldn't surprise us if that's the essence of Christian teaching that we find Jesus repeating pieces of that as he works his way through his ministry. And so in Luke 6, the Sermon on the Plain, it's not up on the mountain, it's down on the lower levels, Jesus comes and he repeats some of those themes. It's not exactly like that other sermon. And he's instructing those disciples, don't miss that. He selected them and now he instructs them. See, that's one of the places Baptists missed it for a long time. I think there's a fresh wind blowing in Baptist circles over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. But for many, many years, our whole focus as Baptists was the evangelistic part of it that says we need to reach people for the cause of Christ so that they don't have to go to hell. But we would help them get saved. Only Jesus can do the saving, but we would do our part and invest in it, and then we would just drop them. And so we had churches full of people who never matured and never grew. Don't miss what Jesus is doing here. He selects his disciples and he intentionally begins to instruct them. So the Sermon on the Plain gives us the high points. Or we, I want you to get some of the high points as you work through it. We'll do that here in just a second. But tucked into all of that mix that I just explained is this verse that we're looking at. And it's tied to a discussion about judging people. 
Now, the judging people is the part that people outside of the church likes to throw at people in the church. You should stop judging me. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Let me just tell you something. That's a gross misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying with that. He does say that. But to just say it as if you're judging me, so leave me alone, I'll do what I want, it's okay. That's not what Jesus says at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus is teaching that judging thing to his disciples. There's a good reason for that. You know what part of human nature does? It likes to feel important. So don't miss this. Jesus has just picked these disciples. Out of all of these people, you're one of my 12. Now, we know that some of these disciples had pride and ego problems. We're going to find that. One of them, the very mother, says, I, I, want you, I want you to let my two boys be right and left of you in your throne in heaven. In other words, my boys are much more important than these other scallywags that you got running around with you. I think Jesus attacks that immediately. As he begins to instruct these guys, he says this stuff about judging. So I do want to read some of this now. Look at verses, first of all, let's start in verse 37, where Jesus says this, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now let's jump down to verse um, 41. He completes his thought when he says, by the way, this is right after the verse that we're looking at today. Verse 41 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You're hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And here's what Jesus is saying. Two basic truths. Here's the first one. You guys, even though I chose you, you have not arrived yet. You know, a lot of church people need to get that. A lot of church people need to figure out. I'm not talking about us necessarily. I'm just talking about generally speaking. um, Just because you're a Sunday school teacher or just because you're in a position of leadership in a church or just because you're in church at all doesn't make you better than everybody else around you. Jesus says to his disciples who had a problem with pride and ego stuff, one of the first lessons you guys need to get is you have not arrived yet. And the second one then, and this is verse 40, is here's the new standard for you. Be like me. Simple, really. Just be like me. You know, for a long time, I've, I've choked on those passages in the letters of the New Testament that Paul wrote where he says to his people, follow my example. Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure that I want you to follow my example some days. You know what I mean by that? Because some days, my sinful humanity just jumps right out of me on a consistent basis. And so the standard, Jesus says, let me just be clear from the outset, the standard to be my disciple is that when it's all said and done, you look like me. Now, I could stop there, but I want to give you something that's a little more tangible for you to take with you. Because I'm going to give you some homework today. What I want to do is, I'm not going to preach through the Sermon on the Plain. There's too much like the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm not going to repeat all of that. So today's all you're going to get from that. But I want to hit a couple of high points 
out of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is saying, you want to look like me? This is what I expect. The first one that I want you to see is actually those verses that we looked at, verses 17 through 19. And that's where Jesus comes down off of that deal. And he models it for those people. And he came down with them and he stood at a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And here's the verse I really want you to get, verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. You catch that? The reason they were coming to him is because something was coming from him, and they were getting it. I'm about to have a son-in-law. My daughter's going to get married in June, and... uh, if this guy keeps his nose clean for the next four and a half months or so, then they're going to get married. <laughs> uh, his name is John. Some of you have met him already. And um, I love this guy. And one of the things I love about him is he loves God and he loves my daughter. And that's a good start. There's a other, few other things we're going to have to straighten him out on, but hey, that's a good start. Okay? <laughs> I'm joking about straightening him out. He's got a lot going for him. Um, but John's not Baptist, and uh, that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, he is very intelligent. He is a student. He's a student of God's word and God's ways. And uh, a lot about John uh, I like. John gave me a book not too long ago, and... Um, I've been intrigued by this book. I read it as quickly as I could, and uh, I liked it. Here's the basic premise of it. Um, John comes from a faith tradition that is, uh, I guess we would call it non-denominational. And, uh, you know, some of the, it's very difficult sometimes to kind of pinpoint some of those things. So let me just see if I can pull it together this way. One of the things that John emphasizes in our discussions, he said, you know, I want to be part of, of a church and help to build a church as a minister uh, that does what Jesus did. Well, you know what? It's hard to go wrong with that. I want want to do what Jesus did. Now, how they do some of that stuff, you know, he and I are still talking through some of that, but um, he he bought me this book, and it's written by a guy who used to be a Baptist preacher. But he saw the light, and now he's part of this other group. Okay? Okay. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I know John's going to be listening to this uh, online, and I'm good with that, and he knows you know, we have great relationship and all. Um, I love the book, and here's one of the reasons. I think that the guy in question, the guy who wrote the book as a Baptist preacher, one of the reasons he says that he did it, I think he's right. You know, I'm not sure I totally agree with what he did, but I think the reason that he made the departure is right, and that is this. He got tired of living in a circle of people who called on the name of Christ who had no evidence in them that Christ was still alive. They were just dead. I mean, they just no power, no nothing. It was just going through the motions of church. Ever been to a church like that? I pastored. No, let me don't say it that way. I was on staff at a church. But that captured them. 
Oh, they would fight with you all day long about the minutia of doctrine. But you couldn't prove that Jesus was still alive by the way they lived their life. That guy got tired of that as a pastor. And he stepped into a group of people who decided that church ought to reflect the aliveness of its Lord. So look at this verse again. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came from him. Remember the standard? We're supposed to look like Jesus. Who do you look like? Well, is there evidence of the divine power of God in your life? If not, there's room to grow. I'm not hammering you for that. Because the reality is I think all of us will have a continuing process of living that out to see that in our lives. But you've got to start somewhere. Is God alive in your life? Here's one of the ways you can tell that. Do people around you need you because of what you bring to them about Jesus Christ? Now, you need to be careful because you're not the draw, but they don't understand the difference sometimes. They just know that you're alive and something's there, and so they they just kind of cling on to you. That's when you point them to Jesus Christ. But it's his power living in your life. One of the things that I used to get in Edinburgh all the time is grows from this principle. People would come into our church there and it was alive. I mean, God was doing stuff in the lives of people. And, and you couldn't put your finger on it necessarily, but you could just walk in your news. God, man, something's going on here. And I loved it when visitors would come to me later and say, you know, we walked in and it was just like electric in there. It was, we, we didn't know what the deal was, but there's just life in that church. Well, yeah, that's what Jesus did, Right? Hello, are y'all there? Did I lose you somewhere? Or is this kind of one of those things you're going, oh man, I wish he'd shut up. This is not even in the sermon on the plane yet. But that's one of those marks of Jesus. Everywhere he went, people were drawn to him because of who he was. A teacher has to be, excuse me, a student is to be like his teacher. So, let me... I'm going to jump to a bunch of these Spencer's. We don't have time for all of this. Let me jump to, um, let me give you, go ahead, 20 through 26. I'm not going to read all of these, but this is the first part of the teaching. We've talked a little bit about some of it, but this is the, uh, the Beatitudes part. Jesus does something different. He flips life on its edge now. The first part of it, we saw that he was investing himself because of compassion for people. And now we see that he gives a different meaning to what life is about and the pursuits that we have in life. What are you shooting for in life? What gets you through the day every day? When you wake up tomorrow morning and you don't really want to go to work, what is it that moves you forward? I'm having to process through some things. My, I told you, Teresa's mom is not well and may very well be in her final days, we just don't know. We, do, we don't know. But it doesn't look good. Teresa needed to get out there to where her mother is, uh, potentially to see her for the last time alive. And so that's caused me, and I, I spent some time on the phone with her last night, and uh, 
listening to some of the things that she and her sister are having to go through, the legal process and, you know, all of those things and money stuff and, you know, the stuff of living that now the mom in the nursing home just can't do anymore and she's in and out, can't do that stuff anymore. So her girls are having to pick it up and, and Teresa's, you know, starting the grief process of losing her mother. In that, uh, it pushes the question, uh, what do you do with your life? Let's put it on you. Let's say that you're the one whose children now are doing those preparations for your last days and they're thinking back over your life. What will they look at you and say, my mom or my dad stood for this? They invested their life for this cause. Jesus flips that. And you notice what he says in one part here. He says, uh, blessed are the poor. But he comes back later in verse 24, I think it is, and woe to the ones who are rich. You know what? That doesn't compute. We like to say it the other way. Matter of fact, the entire denomination say it the other way. God will make you rich to show his favor on you. Jesus somehow says, well, wait a minute. Not so fast. Not so fast. So I hope that you'll spend a little time in the sermon on the plain because Jesus doesn't approach life the way we do. And if we're supposed to learn from him and look like him, that's a good place for us to start. One other one I want you to see very quickly and I'll close with this. Verses 27 through 36, I'm certainly not going to read all of those, but that's the part where he starts to talk to them about loving your enemies. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, etc. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you, etc. Yesterday, excuse me, Friday, I got this in a full-in-your-face example. What Jesus is doing here is he's teaching his disciples about how to treat people. But he doesn't let them off just on the way they treat them. He's addressing the way they view them. Because the way you view somebody impacts the way you treat somebody. So we were headed, like I said, over towards Intercontinental Airport and got to Liberty. I'd picked Teresa up from work. We got to Liberty and decided that we wanted to stop and eat. There's a great fine dining restaurant in Liberty. It's entitled, What a Burger. Only the best for us. And so we, we go in here and we sit down and we begin to eat. And I noticed this guy outside. I've been watching him. Because, you know, I'm generally that trusting kind of guy. I love everybody, right? And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to go out there and clean this guy's clock. He's hanging around my car. He's on a bicycle. He's got these grocery sacks, these plastic bags, five of them. Not that I was watching or anything, but I can tell you what he looked like. I was filling out police reports in my head. So I'm watching this guy. He's hanging around out there, and he comes in. And so now I'm thinking, if you make one move towards my wife, we're going at it, me and you, right now. And he stood just inside the door, and I was watching him here, but I could see the people behind the counter over here. And he picked up on what I picked up. And that is that as he walked in with all of his, he's carrying everything he had had in this world in five plastic grocery sacks. 
And he's trying to set them down, and the people behind the counter are just, you know, giving him that look that probably I was thinking about. And he started talking to them. Well, you think I'm coming in here to start trouble, don't you? And I'm thinking, well, you got a good start to that. And as he's trying to challenge them, every one of them either turned their back to him or they walked around the back into the back part where they didn't have to deal with him at all. For it's all said and done, they left one guy who was working the register and that guy turned his back to him and would not even acknowledge that he was there. That's the world we live in. If you don't live up to a certain standard, you don't count. But that's not the world Jesus wants us to create. I went over to that guy after Teresa and I talked a little bit. He went back to the restroom, I'm sure, to get a shower. He came out, and I went over to him, and I said, How long has it been since you ate? Because I was going to buy, I was thinking of calling my son and how he would, he would be hacking on me for not doing something. So I went over. Isn't it sad that my son carried more weight than what Christ might have? Um, so I went over and I said, how long has it been since you ate? Because I was going to buy him a meal. He floored me with his answer. He said, you know, the Rotary Club uh, was just doing a fish fry and the Episcopal priest took me over there and gave me a box of fish to eat. And I thought, I ain't believing he said that. And then you know what else I thought? My Baptist sensitivities kicked in, that minutia of doctrine, and I thought, an Episcopal priest did that? <laughs> you know, a lot of doctrinal stuff, we had issues with Episcopal priests but we might learn something from them about taking care of people who are poor. What do you think Jesus would have done with that guy? And who do you look like? One of my professors writing about this verse, verse 40, said this, the training that Jesus gives to those disciples and the framework of the Sermon on the Mount, of the, on the plain, excuse me, has to do with reordering one's personal and spiritual life and how one relates to others. It will require continuous spiritual formation. In other words, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, and you're going to look like him in the end, everything changes. And it's a lifelong process. And finally, I get to the verse itself. Here's an interesting little piece of information for you. That term, fully trained, in verse 40, means to be corrected or mended. Mark uses it in his gospel of the disciples as they are mending their nets. The word picture that Jesus gives us with this is that a disciple is not above his teacher, but when he is finished being mended by the education process by that teacher, he'll look just like his teacher. So who do you look like? Where are you in that process? Let's pray. Father, this is tough stuff for us, and yet it is the stuff of life. 
And so we pray that you would take us another step down the road. Help us to spend some time in this passage over the next week. and Find you in it and find ourselves in it and make us more like you. That's our prayer in your name.